Jericho Road is a podcast and a Sunday school class and a ministry of St. Luke's Episcopal Church in Birmingham, Alabama. These days, we're looking at the world of Jesus as it is told by the Gospel of Mark. We hope you'll join us. Well, hey, everybody. Welcome back to Jericho Road, where we're looking at the world of Jesus through the Gospel of Mark. And this is the first in a three-part series, a podcast series of five challenges that Jesus faces as he enters the temple precinct for the last days of his earthly life. Uh, Today's podcast is going to address the question of Jesus' authority or simply his right to do anything. But if we look at it closely, we're also going to see an ethic for all of us. This isn't just a story about him. So let's read these verses and see if we can come up with something new. It's Mark chapter 11, beginning with the 27th verse. Again, they came to Jerusalem. As he was walking in the temple, the chief priest and the scribes and the elders came to him. And they said, by what authority are you doing these things? Who gave you the authority to do them? Jesus said to them, I'll ask you one question. Answer me, and I will tell you by what authority I do these things. Did the baptism of John come from heaven, or was it of human origin? Answer me. Well, they argued with one another. If we say from heaven, he will say, why then did you not believe him? But shall we say of human origin? They were afraid of the crowd, for all regarded John as truly a prophet. So they answered Jesus, we do not know. And Jesus said to them, neither will I tell you by what authority I'm doing these things. These things, they keep talking about these things. These things refer to Jesus' arrival in Jerusalem and two specific events. So if you look at Mark chapter 11, you'll see that at the very beginning, Jesus arrives in town on a colt. Now, Matthew's gospel is also careful to add that this is a donkey, which ties the the arrival of Jesus, if you will, to Zechariah 9, chapter 9. I'll say more about that. But we call this event Palm Sunday. Now, many of our church traditions love Palm Sunday. I especially love Palm Sunday because it's a dry run for Easter. It's the service at the beginning of Holy Week, a week before Easter, the big day, uh, where it's for the church folks. I mean, it's it's crowded, but not overwhelming. It's it's everybody who loves to come to church and sit in their pew before their cousins come and the visitors come, and we just become overwhelmed with the crowds. And if the weather's good, people wear pretty clothes, and we have a we have a procession uh, with the children and palms, and little boys get to whack each other with palms, and it is great fun. It's a child's game, and because St. Luke's is a prosperous church, we also have the money to uh, rent a donkey, and the kids love that donkey. First of all, the donkey helps us burn some clock during the children's chapel minute where they can pet the donkey and they can put their palms in front of the donkey and we can talk about the donkey, which brings me to one of my favorite St. Luke stories in my time here. A few years ago, I had a hundred children out in front of the church and we have a big church and literally a hundred, but we didn't have a donkey. The donkey was late. There was a traffic accident five miles away. And so I got a text, just hang in there, burn some time. The donkey's coming. So I'm standing out in front of the church and our church sits in a residential street where people exercise and walk by. And I'm sure people laughing as they were driving by. And I've got this hundred children on the steps of the church and we don't have a donkey. So I just start making up donkey stories. I talked about the donkey that loved Jesus or the donkey that was so proud that he got to carry Jesus into town. I talked about the donkey soft ears that Jesus would pet. As he rode, said donkey, but we didn't have a donkey. And and unbeknownst to me, while I'm telling these donkey stories, a runner with a pretty large greyhound stopped and is watching me sweat it out with no donkey. And one of our St. Luke's children tugged on my robe while I'm telling the story and pointed at the dog and looked up at me and said, you know, that's not a donkey. 
Yep, we got smart children in our church. But T, there's two things I want to say about Palm Sunday. First of all, it's not a child's game, and it's hard to do. I mean, it's hard to walk uh, this part of Jerusalem, much less ride an animal. I'll explain. When we take groups to Jerusalem from the Galilee, we will go down the Jordan River Valley, take a ride at Jericho, just like the Bible says, right up the Jericho Road, which I've talked about in podcast, and then we crest the Mount of Olives for a photo op. And you've got the you've got the Temple Mount in the background, you've got Jerusalem, it's that famous scene you see on every newscast and everybody takes a picture. But then you've got to walk down the Mount of Olives at, towards the Garden of Gethsemane and the Kidron Valley, just like Jesus did on Palm Sunday, and it's a really steep grade. It's steep down, and it's steep back up, and Jesus would have gone down to the bottom of that valley and then back up another steep grade to the eastern wall of the Temple Mount, around to the southern steps. I'm just telling you, it's hard to do. It's hard to walk, much less ride a colt or ride a small animal. So so the, the first thing we need to remember is that Jesus is being very intentional when he does this, because this is political theater, and it's intended to be provocative. Uh, In the world of Jesus, any general or a king uh, riding ahead of an army after a battle was finished would ride a war horse when there's still work to be done. If the war was not complete and the enemy had not been subjugated entirely, then they would ride a war horse. But a colt or a small animal, a peaceful animal, would signify that something had been finished. What could that be? Then add the Zechariah prophecy of Zechariah 9.9, which says that the Messiah would ride in on a donkey, and the mood suddenly is electric. Would they be free again? Would Jesus save them again? Would he save them from the Romans again? Um, Remember, um, uh, they had this story before. Uh, Gosh, they remembered a liberator who rode in triumph some 160 years uh, before this day, uh, he was a homegrown hero and warrior priest named Judah Maccabee, and he rode into the temple, and he purified the temple, and he made the temple sacred again, and he protected it again, and it's remembered by the celebration of Hanukkah to this very day. Only Jesus didn't do this when he rode into town. Rather, at least in the opinion of the chief priest, he attacked it. Uh, Jesus went up to the money changers, we're told, and he he turned over the tables in the stalls of those who were selling in the marketplace. A little word of explanation is in order. I know from my Sunday school days, I think I was led to believe that that money changing was bad and that church was good and Jesus came to start a new way of doing religion and you separate the business sphere from the church sphere, whatever things. And then also, as I got older, I began to see this trace of uh, Western anti-Semitism around the lending of money or the or the, or the banking industry or whatever, that the money changers represented something uh, evil that Jesus came to fix. That's not what's going on here. Uh, money changing in the temple or the temple precinct was a legit business. If you didn't live in Judea, which a lot of them didn't, remember Jerusalem would swell from 25,000 to a million uh, for the week of the festival. If you had come down from a place like Tyre, modern Lebanon, or, or, or a place like uh, Tarsus in Turkey, uh, you would have a coin from the Roman Empire. You would have a coin with a head on it. Uh, Judean coins were anti-iconic, which means that they didn't have an image, uh, which was in respect to God's commandment. Uh, but if you lived elsewhere in the Roman Empire, you had a coin that was no good, so you had to change it for a temple coin so that you could uh, make your sacrifices or pay your temple tax. I mean, that was an important, legitimate business. And then also, 
uh, you could buy a bird for the sacrifice. If you're walking five days from the Galilee, you can't carry a bird uh, for the sacrifice. I guess you could. I remember I took a, a youth group to Costa Rica on a mission trip a long, long time ago. I was a young person before seminary. And we were walking around a village, and this kid walked up. And he had a parakeet in a sack. He bought it from from guy on the street. And he said, the guy told me I could carry it home on an airplane. Of course he couldn't. You can't carry a bird on a plane. You really shouldn't carry a bird in a sack anywhere. Uh, so, so it's a legit business. But what Jesus saw was something wrong. Once again, they were confusing means with ends. There's nothing wrong with the business. It's just that they had become distracted to the point that he even curses a fig tree there in Jerusalem, which is in full leaf, but has no fruit because it represents what he sees before him. Oh, they're busy. They're just not busy doing what God asked them to do. And quoting Jeremiah 7:11, he says, is it not written that my house should be called a house of prayer for all nations, that you have made it a den of robbers. Now, again, den of robbers gets us thinking about the, the money changing, uh, or the money changers rather being robbers. But I think if you look at the Hebrew carefully, I agree with a man named Robert Alter, who says that more precisely, the Hebrew says, you have made this a cave of outlaws. Cave of outlaws. Now, in the case of Jeremiah, what he was saying is, um, their context was simply this. People weren't being different in the way that the Bible asked them to be different. They weren't they weren't worshiping in a faithful way. Uh, they were cheating their neighbors. They were leaving behind the poor. And they thought they could run to the temple and get protected because God lived there. And it was just a lucky rabbit's foot that they could dial up anytime they wanted. And he said, you're making this beautiful ideal, this house of God, this inspiration, this this daily dose of, of communion with the holy. You've turned it into a cave of outlaws, meaning you've made it into something You've made it into something ugly, if you will. And this is this gets us closer to what Jesus is saying in quoting the prophet, because it's always been that way with God. God has said it before. Some 800 years before Jesus turned over the tables of the money changers uh, in, in a place north of Jerusalem called Bet-El, which means house of God, uh, the prophet Amos, a, a prophet from Judea, walked into uh, the precincts of the of the worship site at Bethel and the king of Israel, the king with his courtiers and beautiful music and incense and sacrifice and a gorgeous liturgy. And they had everything they ever wanted, except they left poor people starving by the front door, which means that they had compartmentalized their religion to the point that they had forgotten to be different. Oh, they had their religion down, but like the fig tree with no fruit, they just weren't getting the work of God done. And so Amos walks in and he says this, and imagine a prophet walking in and saying this to any of our churches. I hate, I despise your festivals. That's a strong word from God. I hate, I despise your festivals. I take no delight in your solemn assemblies. Even though you offer me your burnt offerings and your grain offerings, I will not accept them. And the offerings of well-being of your fatted animals, I will not look upon. Take away from me the noise of your songs. And that word noise there is a specific word. It means like chariot wheel grinding or for us, maybe like fingernails on a chalkboard. Take away from me the noise of your songs. I will not listen to the melody of your harps, but let justice roll down like waters and righteousness like an ever-flowing stream. So for Jesus here in the temple precinct, they were successful, yes. Uh, they were prosperous, of course. They were a well-oiled machine, absolutely. But they were far from God's intent. And so, once again, they were confusing 
means with ends. Uh, our worship is intended to bring us in union with each other and God, and uh, and this has just become the best-run nonprofit in the ancient world. So now Jesus is a threat. He's a threat to the status quo, and now he's in danger. The donkey lit the fuse, and now it seems like the bomb is going off. And this question from the chief priest is a trap, and it's also a fulfillment of something Jesus said way back in Mark chapter 8. He said they would do this to them when he got there. Uh, 8.31, he said, the chief priest will hand me over. This will happen. And he tells them three times uh, that this is going to happen to him, and now it's all coming true. And by authority, what they're meaning is legality. Who gave you the right to come barging in here? So then, as we read, Jesus asked them a question back about John, John the Baptist, and it's more than an evasion, but rather to Jesus refusing to go there. Let's talk about authority for just a second. Now, hanging on the wall in my office, there are ordination certificates. Every preacher's got them. We usually put them in our office to show people that we are legally certified to do what we do or hopefully qualified, if you will, to practice the craft. I mean, that should give you some measure of comfort that I at least took a class uh, somewhere and I've been registered as a card-carrying Episcopal minister when you come to see me. But ordination is deeper than paper or even... Gosh, even a ceremony. I've got my own story that has flavored my ministry and carried me through and delighted me for 30 years. And it goes something like this. Um, When I was in seminary, a seminarian, they would give us a job to do. We had a field parish. We had a, a, a church that was willing to take us in. And then they would give us tasks so we could learn the craft of, of priesthood, if you will. And I was asked to preach at a nursing home on a big army base across the road from my field church in Northern Virginia. So it was called Fort Belvoir, and then this big army base with all these retired uh, officers. And I'm told that the old officer corps was overwhelmingly Episcopalian back in those days. So these people were all World War II vets, service academy grads, all of them about 100 years old, uh, bird colonels and generals and their wives, and I would preach to them, and they would sleep. Yeah, and this bird colonel uh, priest uh, he would celebrate the Eucharist, but he'd be over there sleeping too while I was preaching. I would preach and they would sleep. And after a while, I started thinking, well, I know I'm getting a lot of practice, but this is kind of absurd, right? I'm preaching and they're sleeping and nobody's getting anything done until one day a tiny Vietnamese woman, and she had been a war bride, and she'd come over here uh, during the during the, in the aftermath of the Vietnam War. Uh, she was a housekeeper and she would always turn her, her vacuum cleaner off uh, while we were having the service, and she came up to me and she said, I learned my name, and she said, Rich, I've been listening to you. I've been hearing you, and I believe what you believe, and I want to become a Christian. Well, I took Han. I was so excited. I took Han across the road to my boss, to the rector's office, and I said, I got this Vietnamese lady here who wants to become a Christian. He said, no, 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 no. You started this. You finished this. And so on Sunday afternoons, in a very imperfect way, I was still learning the stories, still learning how to tell people about my faith. I told her what I believed. I told her that God made a beautiful world. I had to start from the very beginning. She was a Buddhist. I had to start from the origin story, how God made a world, and then he was lonely, and he made He made creatures in his own image, and, 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 then, and in time, he loved his creation so much that he became one of his own creation to show us how to live and how to love and how to die and rise again and, and, it, and be right with him. All these stories, I did my best in telling her in one of the proudest moments of my of my ministry was presenting this woman for baptism into joining our family. So the authority that Jesus refers to and the authority that I experienced through Han is love, 
love. It's a willingness to go there. And I told the boards when I was ordained with the bishop and were planning the ceremony, I said, churches are nice, bishops are nice, and boards are nice, but love ordained me and Han ordained me. There are four words in, in, in the Greek language for love, and it's important to remember that the Greek language is a very precise language. The Gospel of Mark was written in this language, and they were very careful to say things in a precise way. So the Greeks would, would have a word for romance, and they would have a word for affection, they would have a word for family love, and then they would have the word for love that we need to hear because love for us is an overused and it's a misused word. We use it all the time. We usually confuse it with romance. But the love that, that Jesus refers to and embodies and incarnates again and again and again, the love that's the authority is agape, agape. And agape is simply self-sacrificial love. Uh, agape is 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 the kind of love that will die for a brother or a sister. Agape is the kind of love that says that I will serve you uh, instead of being served. I'm a big fan of a concept called market myopia, which sounds like a mouthful, but car dealerships love this stuff. If you drive a silver sports sedan off the lot, you'll see your car everywhere. You didn't see that silver sports sedan before, but now that you own one, there's your car. You see it again and again. Well, you can once you see agape, you really can't unsee it. You don't have to define it too much because you can see where it is and where it isn't. You can see a marriage that might be prosperous and they might be on paper uh, successful or even happy, but you could see how they're completely beastly to each other. You could see uh, dysfunctional parent-children relationships that are toxic, although although it's hard to see and it's hard to describe unless you see that there's just absolutely no love, only competition, only fractious, only power, but those kinds of things. You can look at a church that does everything right by the doctrinal book and yet and yet be mean to the core, right? Or exclusionary or want to put God in a box uh, without any love. Love becomes the the identity, if you will, or it becomes the authority, if you will, of how we are with each other. Are we are we in love with God and with the world in the way that God asks us to be, which is that different that God asked from the very beginning, from page one. In Corinth, which is a city way far away from the world of Jesus, up in the eastern Mediterranean, some 20 years after the resurrection of Jesus, a man we now call St. Paul. Paul saw a Jewish business person and a rabbi and a Roman citizen would begin what we would later call churches. Then they they called it the way, the followers of Jesus, if you will. He would begin a community of people who wanted to live the ethic of Jesus and to worship uh, Jesus as the, as the Son of God, as the long long dreamed Messiah, and then in time he would leave them. But the problem with Corinth was that it was a Roman place; it's not the world of Jesus. And like most Roman places, it was competitive and fractious and easily wowed by flashy speakers. And after Paul left them for another city, this community would just basically fall apart. They they looked more Roman, and they didn't look different in the way that Paul. Uh, sought for them to look different. They weren't they weren't loving each other in the way that God asked us to, and so he would write them. And he would write them public letters, which is not a form that he invented, but rather they were like letters to the editor, very common in the Roman world. We would save these letters and put them in the backs of our Bible today. And the one that we call 1 Corinthians, we only have two. He wrote more than those. But in, in the first letter that we have to the Corinthians, in chapter 13, he writes this, and this is 1 Corinthians 13, verses 1 through 3. And no, it's not about weddings and bridesmaids. If I speak in the tongue of mortals and of angels, but do not have love, 
I'm a noisy gong or clanging cymbal. If I have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith so as to remove mountains but do not have love, I'm nothing. If I give away all my possessions and if I hand over my body so that I may boast and do not have love, I gain nothing. He sounds just like Amos here. It's always been the same story. Agape is our ethic. It's our foundation. It's our authority. And I find it curious that when Jesus puts a question back on the chief priest, he talks about John, his cousin John, which is how the story began. Remember, if you read Mark's gospel as a whole, it doesn't begin with Christmas. It doesn't begin with a babe in a manger. It doesn't begin with the star over Bethlehem. It begins with John the Baptist in the wilderness, baptizing people in the River Jordan. And if you want to go back to the first podcast of the season, I'll tell you how it worked. On the southern steps of the Temple Mount, you can find today ritual baths that are installed up and down the stairs, up and down the stairs. And I I don't think this is too much of a misuse to say is if you wanted to go in, you had to get wet. I, I, th- I just think that's how it worked. I think you had to wash in order to go into the temple precincts. And so there were priests who would regulate these baths, and they were called Baptists. I mean, John the Baptist had a role. He was a Baptist, and they were rock stars. You would see these guys year after year and festival after festival, and you got probably had your favorite one, you had your favorite bath to walk up the stairs, and you had just had all the things that you would be familiar with. These guys were highly paid. It was lucrative, guaranteed job. They were born into the job, and yet one day a Baptist named John walked away down to the River Jordan to a natural bath, a natural mikvah where the air was clean and where they could think and not confuse means with ends, and they could re- repent and return and be free and be honest, and love. By way of a little bit of a a postscript here to this thinking on authority, which our authority is love, right, and the willing to go there, um, at the end of the Sermon on the Mount, which is found in Matthew's Gospels, Matthew chapter 7, at the end of the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus said, "A a wise man is like a man who builds his house upon a rock, because wind blows and the rain falls, but the house doesn't fall down. A foolish man is a house of man who builds his house upon sand, because when the wind blows, and it will, and the rain falls, and it will, it doesn't matter how well the house is constructed, it will fall, and great is its fall. Any of the houses that we build, and this could be the house, house, house that we live in, but also the houses of our marriages, or the houses of our friendships or the houses of our businesses or the houses of our neighborhoods, the houses of our churches, of course. These must be built on the foundation of agape. That is the rock beneath our feet and that is our authority to live and to decide and to care and to love each other and love God the way that God asks us to. The rock is agape. And when we have this, when we have this beneath us and when we have this as a lens through which we see the world around us, all of our relationships and decisions will fall into place. So friends, I think this is a story about all of us. And we'll just keep this going and see how these new challenges to Jesus reveal who he really is and who we really are. Thanks so much, guys. See you next time.